so everybody likes a good comeback story, right? It's, I mean, classic movies, and especially in sports, especially us Chiefs fans, we love a good comeback. And we're pretty good at it, too. So what I want to do is I want just for a minute to relive one of, if not the greatest, comebacks in the history of the National Football League. It didn't happen that long ago. It happened about three weeks ago, in fact, if you'll remember. Let's, re- let's go through some highlights. Let's get Sports Center up in here this morning for a second and relive this game. So it's the divisional round of the NFL playoffs and the AFC, the Houston Texans at, at, at Kansas City at Arrowhead Stadium against the Chiefs, and both teams coming in confident, ready to just throw down. Well, the Texans were ready a little bit earlier than the Chiefs were ready to throw down. It took them about... F- 20 minutes to get in the game. So as you well remember, early on, blown coverage on defense gives a huge, long, early touchdown to the Texans. The Chiefs are down within four minutes, seven to nothing. And then when you know the Chiefs get the ball back and they can't get a first down because Kelsey for the moment had the dropsies, you know, it didn't last very long. But for a minute there, it wasn't going so great for him. And he, when he, did you see him when he hit the turf after he made that first drop? I was like, he just broke his hand. You know, what a doof. But he didn't. So that was great. His hands worked really well. So anyway, we try to punt the ball. Dustin Colquitt, I love you. You're a faithful man of God. But that wasn't your day three weeks ago because he had his punt blocked, which was returned for a touchdown. We're down 14 to nothing. Just like that. Then again, the Chiefs have the ball, can't make anything happen. And so then what happens? Uh, The the Texans get the ball back. They can't score. Finally, thank you, Jesus. But then when they try to give us the ball back, Tyreek Hill decides he doesn't want to catch the ball this time. So the ball, boop, he just drops it, loses it. Texans go five yards for their third touchdown of the first quarter. In 15 minutes, the Chiefs are down 21 to nothing. I've never heard 70,000 people be so quiet in my entire life. It was something to behold. The second quarter starts. The Texans decide, let's just keep scoring while we can. They get another another field goal. With 10 minutes left or so in the second quarter, the Chiefs are down 24 to nothing. But there was a comeback that was ready to happen. So the next kickoff, our man, McCole Hardman, Pro Bowler returner, does his Pro Bowl return thing and gets us a huge return on the kickoff to about the 40-yard line, where then Mahomes does his magical thing, leads them down the field 40 yards in about a minute and a half, and they score a touchdown. And you could just tell, even after the return, after that first touchdown, you could just feel something shift, right? You could just tell, okay, the lid's now off, here we go. And wouldn't you know it, about two minutes later, they score their second touchdown, Pretty amazing. And then the Texans can't hold on to their return either. They fumble the ball. The Chiefs get it back on the five-yard line, score their third touchdown in about three and a half minutes. So now they're only down by three points. The comeback is on, but it's not quite complete yet. So the Chiefs decide, like the Texans did a few minutes earlier, we like this scoring thing. Let's just keep doing that, right? Let's just keep going. So they go on and score another touchdown, their fourth touchdown of the second quarter. And at halftime, they're up 28-24. Amen. Yeah. All right. But here's the thing. The comeback's not complete at halftime, is it? Still got 30 minutes left to play. But the Chiefs decide again, pedal to the metal, foot on the throat, let's go for it. So they go score two more touchdowns in the third quarter. They go on a 41 to nothing run, something I've probably ever never seen or heard of in my entire life. Uh, it's it's an amazing thing to think about. So now they're up 41-24. Fourth quarter is kind of boring. The Chiefs only score 10 points, you know. Uh, final score, 51-31. So now it's not the largest comeback in NFL history on its own. However, I'll tell you, one of the biggest comebacks happened against the coach of the team that we're playing today, just to let you know about that. Uh, if you don't remember, that happened. The Patriots said that, didn't they, Cherie? 
I think you probably remember that one, don't you? Second largest comeback ever in the Super, is in the Super Bowl like three years ago. The, yeah, the, the uh, offensive coordinator of the Falcons is now the head coach of the 49ers, so you can breathe easy. He can't keep a lead. All right, so, <laughs> and we have Mahomes, who doesn't know what a deficit really is for very long. He's like, we're done losing. Let's just keep going here. So here's the thing. It's not the largest comeback ever, but it is the most lopsided comeback in NFL history. It's the only game in which one team was down by 20 or more and ended up winning by 20 or more. only happened once. And we were the beneficiaries of that. So we like a good comeback story. That's what we're going to talk about today is a comeback story. So we're in this series 2020 talking about vision, perfect vision for your life, for this year and beyond. So what we're doing is looking at Revelation chapters 1 through 3 where John has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus shows him all these crazy things, apocalyptic things, all these different you know, images and, and brief moments in the future that are just sometimes confusing, sometimes scary But before that, the first three chapters of this revelation, this vision that John has, is are seven messages to these churches that he had pastored earlier in his life. So it's kind of this, what I would say is this sort of personal moment that Jesus takes just a minute with John, says, hey, before I get to like big picture future stuff, I want to talk about you and your life and your ministry in those churches for just a few minutes. So Jesus has these messages to each of these seven churches, and we've talked about two of them so far. And we're going to talk about this one today. The church is in the city of Smyrna. So Smyrna, as, a, as, far, as we're talking about comebacks today, Smyrna is a city that's already had a comeback in its history. So Smyrna has, had been around for a couple thousand years. It's, it's a very ancient sort of city in this part of the world. But in the 6th century B.C., it is destroyed. It is ransacked by an opposing army, and it's left to literally nearly nothing. There's a small little pocket corner of the town that's still there, but the rest is destroyed. So 300 years later, they rebuild. They rise from the ashes. Another emperor comes along and says, hey, this is a cool location, great city with a great history. They rebuild the city. They have their own sort of epic comeback. And you can see on this picture here, there's some ancient ruins here. Uh, This is actually part of the Agora in Smyrna, ancient Smyrna. So these ruins are over 2,300 years old. It's still there today. So Smyrna was still called Smyrna. It's in western Turkey. Uh, now it's called Izmir, but they only changed their name about 100 years ago. So up until the early 1900s, this city was still called Smyrna. It's pretty cool. So this is part of the Agora, like the city, um, the town sort of square where the philosophers would come and debate, people would come and do business, and this is, so this is part of where that would, would be. So Smyrna rebuilt themselves and had their own epic comeback. But the church in the city of Smyrna, at the time of John, the church is looking to mount their own comeback. And Jesus uh, tells them about how they can do that and how that's going to happen and what it takes to make that sort of thing happen. And so we're going to look at this uh, pretty short message that Jesus has to this church. And we're going to look at how we can mount a comeback just like he's telling Smyrna they can do as well. So the church in Smyrna, uh, we're going to read this message that Jesus has to them. It's Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse number 8. So Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will not throw the devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. 
But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. So this church is, is at great odds. The odds are stacked against them. The suffering that they are dealing with is great. The opposition against them is mounting. But Jesus has a, a really encouraging message for them. So again, there are seven churches in this letter. Smyrna is one of only two of the seven where Jesus says nothing negative to them. He has no correction for them. As you've seen the first two weeks, and as we'll see in all but another church, every time he says, hey, you're doing this really good, and you're doing this really bad. Here in Smyrna, he says, hey, you're doing everything great. Not that they're perfect, not their perfect church, but he says, hey, you are withstanding great opposition, and you're ready to mount a comeback. So he has nothing negative to say to them necessarily, although the message that he has is sort of negative. So Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about the church in Smyrna, but their, their situation is very negative. And that's why they're going to mount, hopefully, Jesus says, this comeback. There's two main categories where the comeback is necessary that Jesus talks about, and we'll talk about them both here a little bit this morning. The first main reason that they're in need of a comeback, Jesus says first, is their poverty. He says, I know that you are poor, And that word there in the Greek, really, when you look at it, is not just poor, not just impoverished, but destitute. Like barely surviving is the level where this church finds themselves. Not only as a church, but as individuals in the church. The question is, well, why? Is it just like, are they in a bad part of town? Has there been like an economic downturn? What's the purpose of the poverty? And really, it's the same reason that we looked at last week with the previous church. Because Smyrna, their main, their main source of income is exporting goods, mainly myrrh, which is one of the three things brought to Jesus, which is partly where the name Smyrna comes from, is that export that is from there, that's where that ties in. So we talked about this last week, with them having trade as their major source of income, there are trade guilds in this city. Every trade guild or, or union, if you want to use it in popular terms today, they have their own god that they would worship. So they, they are sort of, by default, forced to worship this god of their guild to have favor and blessing on their income, on their business, on their trade empire. And if they don't, they will either lose their jobs or lose their credentials or, or be on their own or their business will eventually fail. So that's what we see here happening in this church. This church has stood so strong against pressure to give in to idol worship that they are barely making it. Their businesses are failing. Their income is shrinking. They are poor. They are impoverished. They are destitute. Jesus says, I know that you are poor. And what's interesting, though, is that that's not necessarily unique to just this church. When you look at different letters, and we'll reference a couple here in just a second, you see, that's kind of the nature of the first century church. They weren't well-to-do by and large. They didn't have huge, fancy buildings with ornate things in them. That wasn't how they operated because many of them were suffering the same oppression and persecution that this church suffered. So you see, James, when he writes his, his letter to the churches, he says something similar. He says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 says something similar. He says, our hearts ache, 
but we also have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. So we see a theme here, not just in the church in Smyrna, but to most of the churches in the world at this time. They know that what we have now is not much, but what we're rich in is what really matters. Because what Jesus says to Smyrna is, I, I know that you are poor, but you are rich. It's like, well, no, you, that doesn't make any sense, Jesus. You just said they're poor. How can they be rich? He means in the things that matter, in the ways that matter. And so we see that here uh, in these other letters as well. And they're following, honestly, in the example of Jesus in living this way, in living their faith out so strongly they're willing to give up anything and everything for the cause of Christ. It follows in the example of Jesus, which again in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, chapter 8, verse 9, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to make you filthy rich. It's not obviously what he's saying there. He's saying that you're following in the example of Jesus. He had everything but was willing to give it up for, for the cause of the greater good. And the churches are following in that pattern. Now, there's nothing wrong with having things. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with possessions. But it's also not necessarily a status that we should aspire to have. That shouldn't be the number one thing on our to-do list or the number one goal in life is to be materially wealthy. But the number one goal for Christ followers is to be spiritually healthy, spiritually rich. And I'll say this quickly as we move on to the the second main part. Um, Again, it's not bad to have things. And, you know, they they were poor. And so you think, well, that's not good. That's terrible. That's bad. I will say that's not always all a bad thing. Because here's what we find. I actually have read a couple of articles and studies on this recently. One of the main reasons for spiritual decline in this country is affluence. If you get to the core of the core, you can say, well, it's these reasons, but get down deeper. It's this, get down deeper. One of the, if not the main reason for spiritual decline in our culture, in our country, is affluence. So we have the ability to do more and the availability to do more, and so we do more of these other things and just get distracted off of what really matters. We're distracted beyond more than we've ever been before. Spiritual things sort of take a back seat. They have less importance because, well, i got to do this, and we got to do that, and I, you know, this, and I, it's, we just get way too distracted because we have more and can do more. We have more, and so we're less dependent on God sometimes. Like, I don't need to really rely on him hardcore because I'm doing fine. Bank account's fine. Job's fine. I'm protected. I'm provided for, you know, and I've done a lot of that on my own. So what do I need God for? That's where our culture is. So it seems that the church, and this is true around the world, the church grows the most when, where they have the least. It's just true. It's a fact. It's not to say that people that have more can't grow spiritually or be as strong or as on fire spiritually, but it's way more difficult. What did Jesus say? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said the same thing all along. When I'm so distracted with affluence, with stuff, with things, with culture, on all these other pressures and responsibilities and things that I focus on, it takes that time and attention away from what's really important. 
So the church here had very few distractions. They had very little to hang their hat on. So they had to rely upon God. They had to focus on him. They had to seek him for everything. So while the poverty is not a good thing, it's not always necessarily a bad thing. And it wasn't for this church, for sure. The second main area in which the church is looking for a comeback that we'll spend a little bit more time on is this idea of suffering. Jesus says, I know you're suffering. You're going to continue to suffer. You will suffer more. So the things that they're suffering are literal imprisonment for their faith, literal martyrdom for their faith, being killed by the authorities for their faith. They were truly suffering in the strictest sense possible. So for a few minutes, let's look, let's walk through some of their suffering that he mentioned specifically uh, and see how they can apply to us. So we're going to look at three things to know in order to mount a comeback in your life. Three things to know in order to mount a comeback in your life. The first one I will get through very quickly because it's just kind of an obvious statement that's negative, but it's obvious anyway. The first thing to know that, you, that we have to know in order to mount a comeback is we have to know we will suffer. Life is, some of, some of that is just, we do. It's just part of how it is. Jesus tells Smyrna, I know that you are suffering. And so for someone to expect to live a life apart from suffering, no matter their spiritual condition or otherwise, it's going to be a tough existence for that person. Just assume, oh, life's going to be way easier for me than everybody else. I'm going to have way fewer problems and way less stress. And it's not, no, that's, that's, life's going to really hit you hard really fast uh, and repeatedly if that's our mindset. And it's the same for people of faith. So we don't want to have this idea either, well, that now I become a Christian, my life is way easier. It's way simpler. It's not really the case. In fact, if you look at Smyrna and the generation before and after them, it was the opposite. Wouldn't the church of Smyrna have been way better off financially, socially, if they had not followed Jesus? Yes, absolutely. And so suffering is a a human condition for a fact, but also for a Christ follower, it can mean that life is even more difficult than it would be otherwise. First Peter 4.12, Peter writes this to the churches in this region. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. He's saying life will sometimes hit you in the face. Difficulty is part of life. It's just a matter of fact sort of statement. Don't be surprised. And this is specific as well when it comes to our faith. Jesus said it this way, John 15, 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. He's, like, he's kind of calling shotgun on suffering. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like your kids argue about who gets the front seat. And when it comes to suffering, he's like, shotgun, they hated me first, you know. And so here's the thing. When it does come to suffering and our faith specifically, if that's sort of a, maybe a part of the reason that you suffer in your relationships or your life or your different situations that arise, understand at the core of it, it's really not you they have the problem with. It's Jesus that they have the problem with. You just happen to be the one that gets the punishment uh, for that. But here's the thing. So we will suffer. Now, that's not fun to say or talk about or consider, but it must be considered because if we're talking about a comeback, there's no comeback if you're never behind in the ballgame. There's no comeback if you're never 
in fear that I cannot beat this. I cannot get out of this. Things will not turn. If you don't have that moment or those thoughts in your life, there's never going to be a comeback. So to understand that things in life will not always turn out the way that I hope or want or like or wish or plan for, that's part of the comeback story. You have to get behind in order to come back. So the second thing to know in order to mount a comeback is this. Know that Satan is behind suffering. Now, we know that explicitly from the text here in Re- Revelation 2. He's saying, and he, so he mentions this term, synagogue of Satan. We will come back to that in a future week because it's mentioned at a different church, and I'll have more time to explain about, about that. But here's the thing. What he's trying to tell them quickly is it's not this group of Jews that are the enemy here. They're a synagogue of Satan. So they're, someone's working in and through them, causing them to oppress you in the ways that they are. And that's a thing that we see also uh, that we'll talk about in just a second. So for a faithful Christ follower, I would say for a faithful Christ follower, the main source of suffering in your life could, can be and should be attributed to Satan. Okay? Outward oppression, outward suffering, not from within. We'll talk about that, though, again, just to double-check here in just a second. So the main thing when you look at this idea of coming back, especially in a sports analogy, is you have to scout the opponent. You have to know their tendencies. You have to watch the film and say, okay, I know that if this guy does this, this guy's going to do that, and then we can do this to counteract. So we need to do the same thing when it comes to our spiritual opponent, our spiritual adversary, we need to know what his plans are, know what his schemes are. He's only got such a big playbook. Like, he's only got so many tricks he can use, and he just, he just plays the hits. That's what he does. When he finds your weakness, he's going to play that hit over and over and over. When he finds that area that really is going to dig in deep, he's going to hit that over and over and over. So it, it makes sense for us to know our opponent. Again, Peter writing in his first epistle, 1 Peter 5.8, Uh, He says, hey, just watch him. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then in in Ephesians 6, I'll just reference this. He says, remember that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness, against principalities. So what Satan will do is he will use anyone and anything to cause you suffering And what we tend to do, because we're human and we have a limited scope and limited understanding, we see that person as the enemy, as the oppressor, as the cause of our suffering. We see that situation that's unfair and not right as the problem. But Paul says, nope, look deeper than that, that surface level, that person with that name that you're thinking in your brain right now, they're not the enemy. They're not fighting against you. They are, but it's deeper than that. Satan is at work to make you suffer, to make you suffer. But it will, let me just mention this quickly, and then we'll get on to the next thing. It, it, it does make sense, though, for us when we consider our suffering to do what I would call to take an inventory of our suffering. And by that I mean there are many times for a faithful follower of Jesus where Satan is the source of suffering. However, we are human, we are frail, we are sinful, and there are times, perhaps, that we are our own worst enemy. That my sin has gotten me into the ditch. That my error in judgment has caused me to trip up. That my stubbornness against what God's trying to tell me gets me way far behind on what he has planned. My vision is foggy, not because Satan's doing this, but because I am. 
right? If I could get out of my own way sometimes, I could see more clearly. And sometimes if I were to get out of my own way, I would see the enemy coming before he even gets there. There's, it's, there's a possibility at least at times we need to take that inventory. Am I causing my own suffering? And going back to 1 Peter, he mentions this in 1 Peter 4. He talks about suffering for several verses. In the middle there, he has a verse or two, and he says, hey, uh, don't suffer for these bad things. Don't suffer because you're sinful or because you're sinning or because you're going against God. And he's like, nope, don't suffer for those reasons. Suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's what we want to look toward. And let's, look, let's go back to this comeback we started out at the beginning with the chiefs a few weeks ago. The chiefs got themselves into the hole right? If you can't catch passes, you're not going to score. If you fumble punt returns, you're not going to score. If you give the other team the ball at the five-yard line, they are going to score. And so that's what we saw the whole first quarter. The Chiefs made all these mistakes. So if they had not cleaned up their mistakes, there would have been no shot at a comeback. If we'd had much more, you know, the second quarter like the first, more drops, more fumbles, more mistakes, more errors, the comeback would never have happened. They had to clean up their own mistakes in order to make the comeback possible. So it's possible we should do that inventory in our lives and say, what can I do better here to avoid that trap again? How can I be more aware of my shortcomings to know that the devil's going to use that against me sometimes? How can I be smarter about my surroundings and see, don't get distracted on this person who I think is the enemy, but focus on the root of the suffering. is not the person, the situation, circumstance, but it's my uh, enemy, my spiritual enemy, Satan. That's the second thing to note in order to be able to mount a comeback. The third thing to know that we'll focus on for just a few minutes to, to be able to mount a comeback is what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. He says, don't fear your suffering. That's a tall order, but he says, don't fear your suffering. And again, let's put it into context. He's not talking about like, oh, this person doesn't like me. Oh, they unfriended me on Facebook. Or, oh, you know, it's not, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about you're being imprisoned and killed. He's saying, he's telling them, don't fear that. So I, I think that we can follow this same advice with whatever we're suffering uh, to not fear. There's really three things within this that we'll talk about pretty quickly, uh, ways that we cannot fear. We don't have to fear. The first w- reason is because Jesus says, I know your suffering. So Jesus is well aware of what you're going through. He knows what, he's not like just, he's not distracted over on, you know, he's not focused on the Super Bowl today, so he forgets about you. It's not like he's got other things going on. He just, I'm just going to give these guys a break. They're getting on my nerves. They're a lot of work. They're just really stressing me out. Just whatever. Like he is aware of what's going on in your life more than you are. He's aware, though he knows. And not only that, he can empathize with suffering. If anyone can empathize with suffering, it's Jesus. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, it's connecting chapter 11, Hebrews, the big hall of faith chapter, to now chapter 12, because we have their example of faith, he says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that helps us to, so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, we'll talk about that here in a minute, he endured the cross, 
disregarding its shame, now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Here's the key, chapter, verse 3. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. So when I talk about suffering and we compare it to the early church, I don't mean to entirely minimize whatever suffering you may be enduring. So your suffering is very real to you. Someone else may not quite understand how deep a hurt is or how big a loss is, or how much fear you might be, it might be crowding into your mind and your heart right now, but you know, because you're dealing with it. It's your suffering. It's your pain. It's your loss. It's your fear. So Jesus says, hey, I know, I understand. So, and then the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says, hey, think about Jesus, all that he suffered, and he endured to the very end, even with death facing him. He says, if you can remember him, if he can be your example, then you won't quit then you won't give up. Because here's the other thing. If you quit, there's no comeback. If you're, I'm too far behind, we're 24 points down, there's no way, I don't want to pull a hammy, so I'm not going to run my route hard. Mahomes is like, we're down 24, I'm not going to throw my shoulder, i got a big contract to sign, so I'm not going to try to chuck it. If, if you quit, if you give in, if you're like, we're done, the comeback's never going to happen. If you give in to fear, oh, what if we make more mistakes? I don't want to, you know, I'm not sure if I should really try to go for the first down. What if I fumble? If you live in fear, you're never going to come back, never going to happen. So we can't live in fear, and we can do that because Jesus says, hey, there was a lot for me to be afraid of, but I persevered, pushed through, and he's our example. Then the second reason not to fear is Jesus says, he uses this word specifically about the church in Smyrna's suffering. He calls it a test. Calls it, he said, this, you're being tested here. So, and really what we see as you read other New Testament writings is test is another word for opportunity. A test is a chance to see how much you've learned, how much you know, how much you can do, how well you can perform under pressure. So it's a test or an opportunity. And again, going back to Hebrews and James, it's an opportunity, believe it or not, for joy. Hebrews 10.34, you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail when, you, uh, and when all you owned was taken from you. You accepted it. Well, how in the world did they do that? With joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. And then James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, similar language here. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So Jesus says this to the church, your suffering is a test. It's an opportunity for joy. What will you do with that opportunity? The author of Hebrews and then James also say, suffering can serve as really a spiritual exam, if you will. What, can, what good can come from bad? How can I grow spiritually even through suffering? What can I learn? How can I be strengthened for the next time? Because here's the thing, you're not just going to probably suffer once. Like if you get through one ordeal, there'll be another one. And so if we've learned how to grow stronger, how to be more spiritually aware, we can be more prepared for the next occasion. Now, this doesn't mean that God causes all suffering or God causes your suffering, but we do know that he will even use suffering for our benefit. So we don't want to waste it. 
We don't just want to deal with it. We don't just want to survive it. We want to grow from it. We want to learn from it. We want to get stronger for the next time. And that's what the 49ers are going to do today. From their loss today, they're going to learn how to be better next year. Okay? I like that. That was good. So here's the third thing to know. The third reason we don't have to fear suffering is Jesus tells the church in Smyrna that your suffering is only temporary. He uses this term, 10 days. He said, you're going to suffer for 10 days. Now, that's not a literal 10-day period. So what you read in ancient literature, Jewish and non-Jewish literature, is this term, 10 days, is used to describe a short period of time with a definite ending. So Jesus uses this term on purpose, 10 days. It's not literally 10 days, but he's saying your suffering won't last forever. Even think he's probably, maybe, I'm getting into the mind of Jesus for a second. Uh, I'm thinking about Psalm chapter 30. It says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It doesn't last forever. It will, there, there will be at some point an ending to the suffering that you're facing. That's what Jesus tells the church in Smyrna. Another scripture, we got a lot of scripture today. We're, al- we're almost there. All right, the homes, we're in the fourth quarter now, okay? Romans 8.18, Paul says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that, will, that he will reveal to us later. Now, there's good news and bad news there. The good news is the suffering will end for every follower of Jesus. The bad news is we don't know exactly how long your 10-day period is going to be. It could be a number of years like it was for this church. It could be for your, most of your life. But at some point, if you've endured to the end, there is something there at the end. That's what we're going to end today is looking at finally what I'm going to call the prize and the promise. So the suffering ends that leads to why we're in this struggle in the first place. Why Smyrna thought it was worth a comeback. Why they thought it's worth fighting for. Why they thought it's worth remaining faithful because there was a prize and a promise awaiting them. So the prize that Jesus lists is he said, you're gonna, if you endure to the end, you get a crown of life. And this is what you see in the ancient Olympic games, what he has in mind. You get this laurel wreath that you wear. That only the winner gets that. Like back in the day, there's no silver medal. There's no bronze medal. There's a winner and a bunch of losers, okay? And so the winner gets the laurel wreath. They get the crown of victory because they, they won. They finished, and they finished first. So he says, everyone that endures gets this crown of life. The winners of the ultimate race win the ultimate prize. And again, let's go back to Paul and James for just a second. So Paul says, hey guys, I did it. I did it. It's near the end of his life. This is some of the last, these are some of the last words that Paul ever wrote. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul, knowing he's about to be executed, he writes this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So Paul says, hey guys, I did it. He's like, I suffered, you know, I was like stoned nearly to death twice, shipwrecked in the sea multiple times, thought I was going to die. I can't even number how many times, but here I am ready to finally be killed. They're finally going to kill me, Uh, but I made it. I lasted. I endured. I came back. And then James in chapter 1 verse 12 says, hey, you guys can do it too. It's not just for Paul, not just for Jesus, not just for these churches. It's, it's for you as well. James says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
The prize is for the victor if we complete our comeback. And then, then the promise, so that's the prize. The promise that Jesus says is there's, you'll escape what's called the second death. D.L. Moody famously said, if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you only die once. The second birth, the rebirth, the spiritual awakening that we receive when we accept Christ is that second birth, which then helps us to avoid the second death, which is eternal separation from God in hell. And the problem with hell, the main thing is not the flames, not the heat, not the darkness, not the never-ending nature in and of itself, but it's the absence of the presence of God forever. A distance that you cannot come back from because there's, there's zeros on the clock, the whistle's been blown, the game is over, and you're in the visitor's locker room. Okay, so it's like that's not, Jesus says, James says, if we can overcome, we will escape the second death. We will have eternal connection with God forever. You can complete the comeback. So as we close, let me make a couple of statements. I'm going to have the band come back up. We're going to close with one, one final part of the song we sang this morning. So here's what I want for our church. I want our church to be a comeback kind of church. That whatever difficulty we may face, we persevere. Whatever obstacles that there are, that we overcome them. Uh, that whenever we are oppressed by Satan or opposed by others or rejected by our community, that we just respond in grace, we respond in love, and we just say, Yay, Jesus, anyway, that we have that attitude that we can withstand suffering. And then let me ask this question as we close. The question is, are you ready for a comeback in your life? Because maybe you are facing difficulty in general. God can be your strength and shield to mount your comeback. Maybe you're struggling in your faith journey. You're questioning things. You're doubting God. So you can learn to walk by faith and not by sight to mount your comeback. And maybe you are like the church in Smyrna. Maybe you are suffering for your faith, specifically for that reason. You can put your hope in Christ and he will never fail you. He will lead the charge. He will be out in front of you to lead this epic comeback. One quick story before we sing this song. So John, here writing in about 90 AD as as an old man, there's a young man who's actually learning under him named Polycarp. So you fast forward about 60 years after the Revelation is written, Polycarp has grown up, and he's actually become the pastor of the church in Smyrna. The same church that John's writing to later, his understudy becomes the new pastor there. And then after he has pastored this church for many years, he's in his 80s now, and he is being hunted around the region for his life because of his faith. So they finally find him when he's hiding in his home. There are at least two guys that come to arrest him. And while they're at his home, they give him a chance. They say, hey, would you just renounce your faith right here? We won't have to do this. We don't really want to kill an old man, but we will if we have to. And he says, I'm not going to do it. So they throw him into their carriage. They drive him to the arena, and they they throw him out. And they say, okay, we'll give you one more chance. Renounce your faith. You're going to be eaten alive by wild animals in front of all these people. He says, I'm not going to do it. And then they say, okay, well, we won't do that. We're going to burn you alive. If you won't renounce your faith in Christ, we're going to burn you alive. And here's what he said. He said, these 80 and 4 years, Christ has never failed me. Why would I now deny him? So they took him, they tied him to a stake, and they lit it on fire. 
And the story goes, kind of like John, he was dipped in hot oil but didn't die. Polycarp apparently didn't die very fast. He was just burning, you know, burning, 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 never dying. So then after he doesn't die, they eventually stab him to death. He had three opportunities to denounce his faith. He's going to suffer. He's going to suffer a brutal death. He's going to suffer a terrible ending. And yet he did suffer that, but ultimately his, his pronouncement of faith is what led to his ultimate eternal comeback. Because we know, like, I'm ready to meet this guy in heaven and be like, wow, that's a cool story, Polycarp. I want to hear more about your life. How were you so strong in your faith to withstand death looking you right in the face? How were you, like, why didn't you just say, yeah, I've done my thing for Jesus for all my life. I don't want to die this way. I want to go out peacefully. So, yeah, sure. I want to hear that story from him. So we know that he mounted a comeback. He received his prize. He, re- he realized his promise. So I want us to sing this, this last uh, chorus of this song we already sang this morning. And think about that in your life. Whatever you're dealing with, Christ is faithful. Whatever suffering you may be enduring, he's bigger than that. However dire the straits may be, that's just getting you ready for your coming.